0: The Suez Canal is a 190 kilometer long man-made waterway connecting the Mediterranean Sea and the Indian Ocean. It was built between 1859 and 1869 and soon became a vital passage for the flow of goods and people around the world. Prior to its construction, ships were required to navigate around the continent of Africa and negotiate some of the wildest seas in the world around the Cape of Good Hope. The opening of the canal wiped thousands of kilometres and weeks off the travel time. At the outbreak of war in 1914, the canal took on an extra significance. As the first major war involving troops from all over the world, whoever controlled the canal held the upper hand in distributing troops and supplies. From the Allied perspective, Dominion soldiers from Australia, New Zealand and India, as well as horses, food and resources, could be brought to the Western Front quickly and efficiently for the time. The Ottoman Empire also had designs on the canal, possession of which would guarantee a tidy income in shipping taxes and fees. For a disintegrating empire, that kind of cash flow was too good to pass up. They made a couple of minor attempts to capture it at the start of 1915, but the Gallipoli campaign soon forced their attention to be focused elsewhere. But by August 1916, the Turks were once again ready to launch a major thrust with the intention of capturing the canal from the British. Standing in their way were British troops, including two brigades of the Australian Light Horse and some squadrons of the New Zealand Mounted Infantry. With the control of this vital artery at stake, neither side could afford to lose the Battle of Romani. Welcome to the Australian Military History Podcast, a podcast dedicated to Australian servicemen and women covering events, units and personalities from the Boer War through to the modern day. G'day everyone and welcome back. I'll just take this opportunity to say a big thank you to Jake Spear who left a really nice message and a review on iTunes. Jake is an Army reservist but we'll try not to hold that against him. Just kidding. As a former regular soldier, it's my sworn duty to take the mickey out of the reservists at all opportunities. But that doesn't mean there's any deficiency in respect. After all, it was technically reservists who bore the brunt of the initial Japanese incursion on the Kokoda track. More on that in an upcoming episode. And Keith Gibson and Scott on Facebook also said a g'day. Keith's father served at Tarakan, which we covered a few episodes ago. It's always nice to hear the family histories, and it kind of brings home that these events really didn't happen that long ago. And Scott, never fear, I'll reveal the topic I referred to at some stage soon. Anyway, to everyone who takes time to drop me a line, it's really appreciated. Most of today's episode is taken from the official history on the Sinai and Palestine campaign, written by Henry Gullet. Unfortunately, Gullet wasn't there at the time of the battle, and so he's pieced it together from official records and interviews. Now, it could just be me, but it can be a bit hard to follow the chronology. So if I've made a mistake that sticks out like dogs, you know... Then I apologise. It was a hectic fight, with a lot going on in a lot of different places, but I think I've got it about as right as I'm going to. So, to the episode. After the evacuation of Gallipoli, the Anzac troops returned to Egypt, where they recuperated, were reinforced and expanded. The Turks also took some time to recover from their gruelling defence of their homeland. The Australians and New Zealanders were thrown into training at the earliest possible convenience, while the hierarchy of the British army thought about what to do with them next. General Sir Archibald Murray had been given command of all British troops in Egypt after a less than sterling performance on the Western Front throughout 1915. He realised that the Suez Canal was likely to be Turkey's first target when the two sides again came to blows. He also realised that, in the Anzacs, he had experienced battle-hardened troops with which to defend the canal alongside other British units which had also fought at Gallipoli. Of the Australians now under his command, he wrote, "'From a physical point of view, a magnificent body of men,' but had no idea of ordinary decency or self-control. He'd have got to love em. So you can imagine how upset he was when he was told he was losing all of the Australian infantry currently in Egypt. The top brass had decided that they would be of better use on the Western Front, where plans were underway for a massive push which would become known as the Battle of the Somme. Murray consoled himself with the thought that at least he still had the light horse, until the top brass said they were taking them as well. He couldn't cop that, and so pointed out to his superiors that if the light horse were also taken, he'd have insufficient effective mounted troops to conduct operations which would require speed and mobility. Finally, the knobs relented, and the light horse remained in the Middle East to form the nucleus of the Desert Mounted Corps, under Harry Chevelle. Keen to seize the initiative, Murray organized his defences to the east of the canal, with the first and second brigade of the Australian Light Horse being sent to the small village of Romani, or B R Ramana to the locals. 35 kilometers to the east. By 1st of August, the brigades had reached Romani, and observation posts were set up on positions which would become known as Mount Meredith and Mount Royston. And at about 10:30 p.m., the first patrols were sent out to search for the enemy. Throughout the 1st and 2nd August, the patrols made contact with small enemy patrols, and late in the afternoon of the 2nd of August, brigade headquarters were advised of considerable movement on the part of the enemy. Information that came to hand later indicated that the Turkish plan was to follow the 2nd Brigade patrols on their return from reconnaissance as a kind of unintentional guide through the gullies leading to Wellington Ridge. There they would establish themselves and then attack before dawn, overwhelm the defences and then dig in and prepare themselves for the expected arrival of the British reinforcements. That was the plan, but what they weren't expecting was for the Light Horse to be holding the entrances to those gullies. Taken by surprise by the presence of armed troops, the advance units halted and waited for the main body to catch up and to receive further orders. At 9pm on the night of the 3rd of August, the right flank reported contact with a small party of enemy troops, and about an hour and a half later, according to the brigade diary, there was a general feeling of movement along our line, from our right flank towards Mount Meredith. It's an interesting way of putting it, the feeling of movement. In our more modern times of night vision goggles and all sorts of technological wonder gear, it can sometimes be easy to forget that in 1916 none of that existed. These troops were out in the middle of a desert at night. This was only three nights after the new moon, so it would have been pitch black. Add to that, the desert was covered in sand, so even though there were thousands of Turkish soldiers on the move, their footfalls would have been all but silent. So there's little wonder there was only the feeling of movement. You often hear old soldiers say that the actual fighting isn't so bad, it's the waiting. The tension of knowing that at some stage soon, you're going to be fighting for your life. You just don't know when. Minutes tick over to hours, a brief sound from afar carried on the breeze. Maybe it's enemy, maybe it's just your imagination. Your eyes play tricks on you in the dark, particularly if you're a little bit sleep deprived. After a while, they reckon the sound of a rifle shot or an enemy soldier screaming his battle cry almost comes as a relief. Finally... The bloody waiting is over and your nerves can have a break. At around 1am on the 4th of August, the wait was over and the feeling of movement was replaced by the actual movement of Turkish troops commencing their attack. As Henry Gullet records in the official history, From midnight until nearly one o'clock, the Turks maintained their silence. Then the night was disturbed by a wild babble of shouting and the customary Turkish battle cry of Allah, Allah, with Finnish Australia, Finish Australia as a variation. This was followed by a heavy burst of fire along the whole line, which was immediately answered by the rifles of the light horsemen. Neither side yet had definite targets. End quote. As I said earlier, this was just three nights after the new moon. Gullet's last line stating neither side yet had definite targets confirms just how dark it was. For both sides, it was a case of firing into the night in the hope of hitting someone. But in this phase of a battle, the advantage is always with the defenders. They can remain behind cover only exposing their heads and shoulders enough to poke a rifle over and shoot. The attacker on the other hand, well they have to move. They have to either stand up and run, or at the very least move out from cover and crawl across exposed ground. In a situation where the shooters are firing blind, you're much more likely to be hit than be hit if you're the defender. After about an hour, the Turks had managed to creep into about 30-40 yards from the Australian line. It was still dark and the Australians were controlling their fire, only shooting when they could see the flash of a Turkish rifle. It was estimated that the attacking force numbered over 2,000 men, and due to the vulnerability of the right or southern flank, the defenders were eventually forced to withdraw from their position on Mount Meredith towards Wellington Ridge, and form a new defensive line in order to face the threat head on. The Turks saw the withdrawal, and sensing an opportunity to chase down a retreating enemy, they surged forward, capturing or killing any man who was not quick enough to get away. In front of the 3rd Light Horse Regiment, two posts containing eight men each, under Sergeants Bingham and Tolman, were overrun, and most of the men, including the two sergeants, were killed. It was during this confused withdrawal that a legend was born, Bill the Bastard. Bill was the mount of Major Shanahan, who was the only person who could control the big horse. He already had a reputation among the 1st Brigade as being a difficult and cantankerous horse. But during the withdrawal, he showed another side to his character. As Shanahan was riding around checking on his listing posts, he spotted a group of four light horsemen making their way back on foot, their horses having been killed. They were surrounded by Turks and in danger of being killed or captured. Major Shanahan gave Bill a tap with the spurs and Bill charged in through heavy gunfire and the pair made it to the stranded troops. With bullets still flying in all directions, Bill stood patiently while the men climbed on. Then, with Shanahan and two of the men on his back, and the other two hanging on to his stirrups, Bill turned and ran back to rejoin the Australian lines. So when you add all that up, five blokes with their equipment, let's say a 100 kilos each, give or take, that's 500 kilos that Bill was carrying and he did it without complaint. That's the same horse that would normally throw any single bloke who tried to climb on. Don't tell me those horses don't understand what's going on. Another example of the chaos of the withdrawal was a sergeant from the 1st Regiment He saw one of his men fall beneath a rushing group of Turks. He wheeled his horse, screaming loudly, and rushed into the pack, got the man onto the back of his horse, and bolted back to the relative safety of the regiment. It was only then that he realised the man he had rescued, in inverted commas, was a Turkish soldier. Before the sun rose, there was no doubting that this was a massive attack, and the thin line of outposts would without doubt be pierced. The 3rd Regiment's right flank, under Major Birkbeck, a civil servant from Mackay in Queensland, was ordered to withdraw and was sent to support the Brigade's left flank. But moving over the ridges and gullies in the dark was tough going, and the move took time. Meanwhile Shanahan, fresh from rescuing the four men, was out on the left and fighting hard to hold on while Major Fulton held the centre. Adding to the whole confusion, shortly after the battle had commenced at 1am, the phone line between the 3rd Regiment and Brigade Headquarters had been cut, and communication between the squadrons was nearly impossible. The fighting came down to the skill and tenacity of the squadron leaders, and there was little the higher commanders could do until daylight revealed the scene, except to trust that their subordinates would do what was needed. At around 2am, Lieutenant Colonel Bourne, commanding officer of the 3rd, sent in his reserve squadron under Captain Stoddart to try and stem some of the Turkish incursions. Many of the Turks had discarded their boots to enable them to move faster through the sand and threw themselves at the defenders on Mount Meredith. The Australians held, but the Turks were pretty much firing at point-blank range. At about this time a large number of turks attacked at Hod El Enna a bit to the southwest of Mount Meredith it was obvious that while the frontal attack was holding the defenders in place this attack was going to attempt to outflank them but the Australians on that flank held firm determined that any ground the turks might seize would come at a heavy price there was a brief lull in proceedings while the turkish main force moved up and then at around 2:30 they renewed their attack aiming at mount meredith packed close together they presented an easy target for the Australians, who really just had to shoot to their front and they would hit someone. The frontal attack was held comparatively easily, with the steep slope in front of Fulton's position creating as much of an obstacle as the defenders. But though the frontal attack was repulsed, the flanking attacks met with more success, and by three o'clock the decision to abandon Mount Meredith was made. The 1st Light Horse Regiment had taken the brunt of the attack and had suffered a heavy number of casualties. Five of the regiment's captains had been wounded, and many other ranks had been killed. Shanahan now had his flanks exposed. Birkbeck still hadn't made it into his new position yet, and no one was 100% sure where he was. Shanahan was ordered to stand his ground. It's one thing to order a squadron to hold their ground, but quite another thing for that squadron to make it happen. The bloke doing the ordering, in this case Lieutenant Colonel Bourne, couldn't have known the full extent of the situation. It was dark, communications were poor, and there were many things happening all at once. From his position, Bourne no doubt thought Shanahan should be able to hold, but from Shanahan's position, things looked very different indeed. He was being attacked from three sides. He had no flank protection, and if the Turks managed to work in behind him, then his squadron would be lost. His casualties were becoming heavy, and by 3.30am, he had no choice but to fall back to where the regiment's horses were being held. Bourne had already identified a fallback position from where he hoped to re-establish the defensive line, and when he was advised that Shanahan had fallen back, he ordered the withdrawal across the entire front. The dismounted Australians in their boots and leggings were slower in moving across the sand than the barefooted Turks, and many diggers were captured. But the majority managed to mount their horses, carrying their wounded mates, and fell back. Bourne described the withdrawal quote, The bullets were making little spurts of flame all around us owing to the phosphorus in the sand. Here we experienced for the first time the moral effects of turning our backs on the enemy, and the question arose in our minds as we rode Can we reform? The order, section about action front, was given as we reached the position and was splendidly carried out. This high test of discipline gave us renewed confidence. End quote. To me, Bourne's concerns about whether they could reform highlight something you never really think about when a withdrawal is ordered. What if the fact that the order is given gives the troops the belief that the fight is lost and rather than withdraw, they run and keep running? It had happened during the British landings at Cape Helles on the 25th of April 1915. One unit had managed to push forward and were holding the line reasonably well. But then one or two of the blokes started to make their way back. Seeing this, some of the others reckoned that they were breaking, and so they broke as well. And before the commanders knew what was happening, the whole unit was running back in panic. Who's to say that the same thing wouldn't happen at Romani once the orderly backwards movement had begun? He needn't have worried though. The troops dismounted with their flanks secured by the infantry at Katip Gannet, and hurriedly dug in and settled down to face the enemy again. The position was still precarious, but a squadron from the first regiment arrived to reinforce, and Birkbeck and his men finally showed up on the right. The Turks were still chasing, though, and had set up machine guns on the recently abandoned Mount Meredith and were sweeping the horse lines. The sun finally began to make an appearance which was a double edged sword. The mass formations of the Turks were laid out to the Australians, making perfect targets. But the Turks also got to see just how thin the Australian line was, and they brought the full weight of their fire to bear. While this was happening, a large body of Turks showed up on the 1st Brigade's right flank and began inflating the defensive position. There was nothing for it but to abandon that position as well and retreat to Wellington Ridge. The force moved back in steps with one troop covering the other and leapfrogging back. The Turks made a number of attempts to overwhelm the retiring column. But were thwarted. Shanahan was wounded and some men were killed, but the undulating nature of the ground provided good natural cover and the casualties from this maneuver were surprisingly light. Daylight also saw the introduction of artillery into the fight during the night the opposing forces were so intermingled no artillery officer in their right mind would risk lobbing a few shells. But now, with daylight, the location of enemy troops was clear, and the Turkish artillery soon opened up with shrapnel and high explosive. The high explosive was more of a psychological weapon at this stage. It made a lot of noise, threw around a lot of sand, but any real damage was only local. The sand pretty much neutralised the energy of the blast, but the shrapnel did inflict damage and the Australians squeezed into whatever fragile protection they could scratch out for themselves. The British artillery wasn't quite so keen to get in on the action, not lobbing their first shells until quite some time later. A greater relief to the 1st Brigade troops was the sight of the 2nd Brigade advancing from Atmala at about 4.30am. So what were the 2nd Brigade doing all this time while the 1st Brigade was clinging on by their fingertips? A good question. I'm glad you asked. Well, the truth of the matter is, the 2nd Brigade was Chauvel's only reserve. Throw them in early, and he'd risk either sending them in against something other than the main attack, or sending them into the main assault and risk losing them. So he held them at Atmala during the night of the 3rd and 4th of August. And anyway, he had confidence in his old Brigade, the 1st. He knew they'd hold on, and in the final wash-up... His faith was proved to be well founded. They may have been pushed back, but they hadn't broken, and they were still putting up a fight when, with daylight revealing the situation, he can now commit the second. Normally under the command of Brigadier General Granville Ryrie, at this moment the second was under the temporary command of Brigadier General Jack Royston, who would soon come to be known as Galloping Jack. As the sun rose on the 4th of August, Chevelle personally led the second out of Etmala, he felt that the threat to Romani was no longer coming from Mount Meredith, but was now the Turkish left flank attack at Mount Royston. It's one of those strange quirks of history that Brigadier Royston was now going to attack a hill with the same name as him. It's uncanny. So anyway, Chavelle ordered Royston to take the 6th and 7th Regiments to the 1st Brigade's right flank to meet the Turkish push. Leaving their horses about a mile behind the line, the troops moved forward on foot in a long line. Turkish machine gun fire fell short and their shrapnel was falling long and so the Australian casualties were light. By 5am the Turkish activity increased, machine gun fire intensified, aircraft began adding their weight to the firepower, and the artillery became even more active. The delay of their advance party early in the morning and the unexpectedly dogged defence meant they were six hours behind schedule. They had expected to have completed the worst of the fighting in the cool of the night. By this stage they were supposed to be on Wellington Ridge, but instead they were still fighting their way forward. The heat was rising, and the troops were becoming exhausted and running out of water. And remember that many of them had discarded their boots so they could move faster over the sand. Hot sand and bare feet are never a good mix. The Turks launched a diversionary attack against some British posts with the intention of pinning the English 52nd Division's infantry in place, while the main thrust pushed against the two light horse brigades on Wellington Ridge. The British artillery can now come into play being able to locate their targets for the first time, They managed to quieten the Turkish machine guns on Mount Meredith. But with sheer weight of numbers, the Turkish infantry still made headway. But Chevelle was expecting this slow advance and wasn't particularly concerned. He'd planned for it, and so it was all working out how he thought it would. So long as they kept the Turks from capturing the railheads, Mala and Romani itself, then they would eventually exhaust themselves and have no choice but to retreat. As Gullet stated in the official history, It was inevitable that unless they speedily won the hods and water at at Mala, the great assaulting wave must spend itself and perish on the burning sand. The Turks were made to fight for every inch of ground, and the longer they fought, the closer they came to destruction. Not that the fighting was easy for the Australians either. They had to hold on as long as possible, sometimes fighting hand to hand to slow the Turkish advance as much as possible. It was still the troop commander's battle, with high command only able to watch and make sure they had troops where they were needed, when they were needed. Shortly after daylight, a large body of Turks managed to push into a valley at the foot of Wellington Ridge, about three to 400 yards from the Light Horse line. From this position, they were able to pour fire into the Australians who suffered heavy casualties. Keeping the line intact, the Australians pulled back and finally, by 7am, the Turks had achieved their objective of capturing Wellington Ridge. A general withdrawal was ordered by the 3rd, 6th and 7th Light Horse and the Wellingtons, but it was an orderly affair, with one squadron moving while the others provided cover. All wounded were carried back, sometimes at great risk to their mates. A Corporal Curran of the 7th Light Horse had just brought in a number of wounded comrades, but he was killed when heading out to find some more. With Wellington Ridge in their possession, the Turks were now only 700 yards from Etmala and its precious supply of water. Riding along the firing line, Royston met up with the commander of the Wellingtons. You can give them no more ground or we shall lose the camps, Royston said to Meldrum. Meldrum responded with, if they get through my line here, they can have the damn camps. I'm guessing that was his way of saying that the only way the Turks would get through his New Zealanders would be if they killed the lot of them. The best course of action for the Turks at this point was to push forward with all haste before the Allies could solidify their positions. But they didn't. They were exhausted, and their commanders had little choice but to allow the troops an hour to rest. They were already seven hours late, and an hour's delay, although necessary, meant that it was 8am before they formed up and made ready for the next push. That 700 yards to Etmala must have seemed like a marathon to the poor Turkish infantry who would have to cover that ground. They began pouring rifle fire and machine gun fire into Etmala, but while lined out on the Wellington Ridge, they presented perfect targets for the British gunners. The shelling pushed the Turks back over the crest of the ridge. Technically, they had gained their objective, but they lacked the resources and energy to exploit it, and so they dug in on the reverse slope and waited until late afternoon before showing themselves again. Having seized Wellington Ridge, the Turkish left flank was dangerously exposed to attack, and now was the time for the Allied counter-attack. But the vagaries of the British command would come to the fore instead. A quick overview of the command structure might be handy at this point. Murray is the top dog and he's way back in Cairo. Directly under him was Lawrence, a bit closer to the action at Kantara, but still quite a way back. Then you've got Chevelle and Chater looking after the actual scene of the action. Early on in the day, communications to Lawrence were cut, so he had no timely updates as to what was going on. So when the opportunity to hit the Turkish left flank presented itself, Chater, who would carry out the attack, had to get authority to do so from his direct supervisor, Lawrence, who obviously couldn't give it because he had no contact with Ada, This practice of high command situating itself back from the front is something which will dog the Allied efforts throughout 1916 and into 1917. The official word on why they were so far back was that they needed that space in order to gain a wider view of the overall situation, so to speak. If they were too far forward, they could only get a localised view. That was the theory anyway. I'm sure it had nothing to do with Cairo and Kantara being ever so much more comfortable than the privations of forward command. Murray's propensity for commanding from afar would play a large part in his replacement in 1917 by General Allenby. Allenby was always up close to the front, and it's no real surprise that after his appointment, their Allied advance began in earnest. Anyway, back to Romani. Chavell himself had to charge back to Gantara to tell Lawrence what was going on, and to obtain position for Chater to attack towards Mount Royston, and for Jack Antle's 3rd Light Horse Brigade to strike towards Beer El If the name Antle rings a bell, he was the Major back in 1915 at the Neck who kept telling the 10th Light Horse to push on, despite the first two waves from the 8th Light Horse being completely wiped out. Another 300 odd men killed for no reason didn't seem to have harmed his career any. By Romani, he was a Brigadier. Anyway, he didn't have any impact upon Romani as he didn't get into position until after the day's fighting was done. The delay in receiving orders from Lawrence pretty much saw the opportunity lost. Chater was still on his way, and as I said, Antle wouldn't get to the scene until the fighting was over for the day. The Turks, on the other hand, were keen to keep things moving. Just after 7pm, a brigade strength of infantry with some mounted troops advanced between Mount Royston and Atmala, and after an hour, General Royston reported that the Turks were enveloping his right flank. The move brought the Turks into range of some Gloucester yeomanry, who opened up but were more of a nuisance value than any real threat, and Royston's position was still serious. Chevelle had no option but to extend his line to meet the attack. Fortunately, a forward-thinking battalion commander of the 52nd Division, during the withdrawal from Wellington Ridge, had taken it upon himself to occupy a position on the extreme left of the Australian position. Chevel was able to ask for support from this battalion, and two companies were put into the fight to help Royston. I bet you that battalion commander got a nice bottle of wine and a profuse thank you from Chevelle after it was all over. By 11 o'clock, the situation had stabilised and the front around Wellington Ridge became stationary. The British 52nd Division had taken very little part in the fighting to this point, holding their area against any possible attack. But now, the Turks obviously checked Chevelle wanted to prepare for the next phase, which would be a mounted pursuit of the Turks. To do this, he needed his mounted troops on horses, but all those troops were currently holding the line. So Chevelle requested the 52nd Division to send a brigade to replace the light horse to allow these troops to have a breather and to get their horses watered and ready for what they do best. But again, the command structure complicated things. General Smith of the 52nd was also under the direct command of Lawrence back in Cantara. The brigade commander had to get Smith's permission, and just like Chater, Smith had to get permission from Lawrence to fulfil Chevelle's wishes. But it was all academic anyway, because Smith had already decided he was going to launch a counter-attack of his own, using his infantry. And the brigade Chevelle wanted was Smith's reserve brigade for this counter-attack. So Chevelle just had to accept and watch a golden opportunity for a mounted attack slip away. I don't really know what his default temperament was, but I'm pretty sure he may have muttered a profanity or three under his breath at this stage. I would have. Unfortunately, it's very difficult to find any records of what the Turks were thinking at this time. But you've got a feel for them. They've just thrown everything at this attack. They'd pushed hard from the small hours of the morning, suffered heavy casualties, but here they were, within striking distance of the final objective and knowing they didn't have anything left in the tank to take that objective. Nor can they hold their gains. They don't have the water, the food or the ammunition to sit there and fend off attack after attack. The only real option is to pull back. But then, do that and it's all been for nothing. All those lives lost just to turn around and leave. What a waste, poor buggers. But it wasn't the first time troops have faced this situation in war, and it wouldn't be the last. But as they'd proven at Gallipoli, the Turks were tough and resilient soldiers. The situation may appear hopeless, but that doesn't mean they would give up. Lawrence's main concern on the night of the 3rd and 4th of August was that the Turks would encircle right round the Allied position and attack Romani from behind on the following day, and so he ordered the British 42nd Division to head out to Pelusium, which was actually the opposite direction. But to be fair to Lawrence, he was a long way from the action. The 5th Light Horse was ordered to establish where the Turkish left flank was. They headed towards Bir Elnus and confirmed that the location was empty just before daybreak. But soon after they saw about two battalions of enemy on the next ridge. The Turks opened fire with rifle and machine guns and Wilson, commanding the patrol, reckoned he'd done what he'd been ordered to do. He'd found the Turkish left flank and he got out of there. Fortunately, this was reported to Lawrence and convinced him that Romani wasn't going to be attacked from behind, and so he was able to send the 42nd to provide reinforcements at the pointy end rather than guarding an empty patch of desert. Chevelle sent a squadron of the 6th Light Horse under Major Cross to counter this Turkish advance on his right. Soon, the rest of the 6th under Lieutenant Colonel Fuller joined that squadron, and they were soon kept busy by about 2,000 Turkish troops at a range of about 800 yards. They inflicted heavy casualties but as they always seemed to do, the Turks got to within bayonet range of the Australians, who were obliged to fall back about 700 yards. The third light horse came to the assistance of the six, as well as a couple of infantry details who were dug in on a number of small redoubts. But the Turks kept on coming and were enveloping Fuller's right flank, and the sixth was pulled back to circle around the third and extend the right flank. When the sixth settled into their new digs, the Turks were about a 1,000 yards away on low ground in front of Mount Royston, the Australians had the high ground and were able to observe just about all the Turkish movements. Although the Australians were overextended and very thin on the ground, this ability to direct intense fire whenever the Turks exposed themselves gave the Turks an overestimation of the Allied numbers. They halted and dug in. By this stage, the constant stretching of his line to the right meant Chevelle's line in front of Wellington Ridge was perilously thin. The 7th Regiment was so close to At Mali that in the afternoon the Cooks managed to bring hot tea up to the front line. Despite being so close, the Turks made no attempt to push forward. Maybe they were hoping the attack on their left flank would do the job. It wasn't long afterwards that Chater finally arrived at the scene, and the Gloucesters inquired if Chater would attack Mount Royston, and Chater advised that yes, yes they would. Chater's assault now made Mount Royston the critical point of the battlefield. If Chater could smash the Turkish flank, then their entire force would be at risk. The horse artillery, concentrated its fire on the small depressions and dunes around Mount Royston in order to keep the Turks pinned to the position. Chater arrived with the Canterbury mounted rifles, a few Aucklanders and some yeomanry. The 127th Infantry Brigade was on its way, but were not yet available. On the way, he met the 2nd Light Horse Brigade under Royston. The 2nd had been fighting hard all day and Royston, despite being in his 60s, had spent the day riding around the brigade front encouraging his troops, telling them that the Turks were just about done despite the troops being acutely aware, for the most part, that this wasn't the case. Not that it mattered. Galloping Jack was well loved by his lads by this stage. The rumour going around was that he had worn out 14 horses throughout the day. He'd also received a wound to the thigh, but only went to have it seen to upon orders from Chevelle. But he was impatient to return to his brigade, and so he took off before the medical orderly had finished tying the bandage. The sight of him charging around the brigade front with a bloody bandage streaming from his thigh heartened the Australian's no end. I mean, how could they possibly lose with someone like Galloping Jack at the head? Royston gave Chater a rough description of the situation, and Chater sent his troops forward. It was a long, hard slog in the intense heat, with the hot sand almost cooking the leather boots of the Kiwis. The Turks, as they always did on the defence, dug in and held on to the, each position until it was pointless to continue. Slowly but surely, the New Zealanders routed out the defenders from around Mount Royston, and by 6pm the Turks began to surrender in large numbers. Chevelle had intended for some light horse units to attempt to retake Wellington Ridge as soon as Mount Royston was taken, but light was fading fast and the position was too complicated and the men too knackered to be able to take it in the dark. Chevelle ordered everyone to hold their positions and catch whatever rest they could throughout the night. By now the situation for the Turks was dire. They had suffered heavy loss, they had run out of water and they knew there was a large body of British infantry heading their way. Many of the prisoners who had been captured by the Allies were suffering from dysentery, suggesting that things were not good in the Turkish camp. On the Allied side, they too had suffered heavy casualties, and they too were exhausted. But being exhausted while on the point of victory is a completely different kind of beast to being exhausted on the point of defeat. Early the following day, the Allies launched their attack against Wellington Ridge. The fighting was again fierce, but the Turks were just about done. The Seventh Light Horse... Fighting his infantry, fixed bayonets and charged the Turkish line. This broke the Turks on Wellington Ridge and they fell back in full retreat. The Turkish command saw this and realised that the game was up and ordered a general withdrawal. The Anzacs kept following the retreating enemy, taking many prisoners until the Turks made a stand at Kartia. At 2.15pm, with the 1st Light Horse Brigade on the right, the New Zealand mounted infantry in the centre and the 2nd Light Horse Brigade on the left, orders were given to attack the positions. The advance went forward in line, and as the diary of the 1st Light Horse Brigade states, not a single horse was lost, although the machine gun and rifle fire was very heavy. They advanced to the Turkish line and captured part of the defences. However, daylight was fading, and the horses were not in any condition to continue advancing. Many had not had food or water since fighting began early on the previous day. Cartier had no substantial supply of water or fodder for the horses, and so the order to withdraw back to Romani was given. Effectively, the Battle of Romani was over. However, there were still considerable Turkish forces in the area. The day following the fighting at Katia, the 6th of August, was spent mostly in tending the horses and clearing the battlefield of dead and wounded men. To maintain a presence forward of the Anzac position, patrols were sent out to dissuade the Turks from mounting another attack. The Turks, however, were done. Far from preparing to attack again, they were beginning their withdrawal, heading back across the Sinai. On 8th of August, the Anzac mounted corps moved forward unopposed to occupy Katia and the long pursuit of the Turkish army across the Middle East had begun. The Suez Canal was secure, but another two years of fighting lay ahead, which would see the Turks and the Desert Mounted Column join battle at Magdabar, Gaza, Beersheba, Damascus and Jerusalem, just to name a few. The ANZACs suffered 1,130 casualties, dead and wounded, while the Turks suffered a staggering 9,200 casualties, including over 4,000 taken prisoner enjoyed that episode if so feel free to leave a comment on the website at australianmilitaryhistorypodcast.com or on instagram under amh podcast or on facebook also apparently leaving a review on itunes helps more people to find the podcast so it'd be very much appreciated if you can head over to itunes and leave a review and a comment so that more people can learn about the amazing history of australia at arms and remember if there's any aspect of our military history which you would like to hear about drop me a line at amhp.media at gmail.com Thank you for listening to the Australian Military History Podcast. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be.